Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Rendon, director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In our previous episode, we discussed Venezuela's economic collapse and recent trends in the country's increasingly dollarized economy. This week, we'll be focusing on one of the most devastating impacts of Venezuela's economic and political decline, the country's water system. In 1998, 87% of Venezuelan population had access to clean drinking water. Now only 18% do. Clean water is a luxury in Venezuela. Many Venezuelans resort to drinking water of dubious quality, such as from contaminated waterways. Others have to stockpile and reuse the water that they do have. And the problem is not just about potable water. Many Venezuelans do not have regular access to running water at all. An estimated 20 million people either lost access to water or experienced water shortages in 2019. I talked to Venezuelan migrants in Cúcuta about this issue. Here's what Jose, one of the men I talked to, had to say about it. Well, the water would come on Saturday and Sunday and not the rest. And sometimes it would come. If it would come, it would come like dirty and brown with dirt. We had to boil the water. To discuss this issue, we're joined by Mark Schneider. Mark is a senior advisor to the America's Program and the Human Rights Initiative here at CSIS. He has a long and distinguished career spanning government, civil society, international organizations, and academia. He served as a senior vice president of the International Crisis Group and formerly served as director of the Peace Corps and assistant administrator for USA for Latin America. Mark is an expert in post-conflict reconstruction and human rights. And more recently, Mark and I hosted perhaps one of the biggest conferences in international communities surrounding this issue of water crisis in Venezuela. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. Thank you. Now, Venezuelans have been experiencing water shortages for years. The Maduro regime has excused this as a resource problem. And yes, indeed, between 2013 and 2016, Venezuela experienced a severe drought that depleted its water supply and compromised its hydroelectric capacity. But this is not just a resource problem. At the root of this is years of mismanagement, corruption, during which the Chavez and Maduro's government failed to maintain the water supply system 
and not to mention the amount of Venezuelan professionals in the industry who had to flee the country to pursue better opportunities abroad. So Mark, can you tell us about the status of Venezuelan water infrastructure and where did the Chavez and Maduro government go wrong in terms of the water policy? I think that you have to think about this as an unmitigated disaster from one end of the water system to the other. That is from where the water resources take place in the mountains and uh, the lakes and the rivers of the country, which the Maduro regime and before that Chavez allowed to become polluted. And thus the water at its source was polluted. And then particularly the Maduro regime, as you noted, has essentially spurred the departure of thousands of professionals and engineers who manage the water system. And so there's been a lack of maintenance of the pumps, of the pipelines, and particularly of the water treatment plants. In the past, let's say in the 90s, most of Venezuelan's water, and remember, Venezuela, in terms of natural fresh water resources, is one of the top 15 countries in the world. The problem right. is now those resources are polluted. So now the water treatment facilities have to be better than they were, let's say, 20 years ago. And in fact, now they're virtually not functioning at all. And then when you get to the point of bringing the water from the treatment plants into people's homes, those pipes have broken down. And there's been a total failure of management, of maintenance, and of assuring that the quality of water, when it gets to the people's homes, is adequate. It's not. It's virtually undrinkable. And as you noted, given the power failures, many of the people in Venezuela, in the cities particularly, there is no running water substantial parts of the day. Absolutely. I mean, that's why many Venezuelans have begun to purchase their drinking water from tank trucks, right? Which most of them are sold in dollars, by the way. In Cúcuta, I talked to Javier, a Venezuelan migrant from Maracay, the best city in Venezuela, but also my hometown, <laughs> which is west of Caracas, is also known as the garden city of the country, given the amount of trees, parks, and greens. Javier, he recalled how expensive it was to get clean water. Yeah, well, imagine the lack of water then. We had to buy from tank trucks, which at first cost a certain amount. And then they started charging in dollars now, and it's very difficult. Well, because the dollar is expensive. To put this in perspective, in 2019, one mom's wages at the minimum wage will only be enough to cover two weeks of drinking water for one person. Tatiana, a Venezuelan woman from Yaracuy, a mountainous and remote state near the coast, said that she was lucky to live in a community with semi-regular access to water. But as she tells it, other communities were not so lucky. Where I live, like I said, was a privileged area because we had a mountain nearby and stuff. So we didn't suffer much with water. But in Barquisimeto, they did. Barquisimeto is an area where, with water, they suffer a lot. They buy from tank trucks. There, refilling from a tank truck can cost up to $150. From what we've heard from people who I work with who came from Barquisimeto, that's what they say. They have to pay the tank truck and for the water. Mark, people need clean drinking water to survive. What are the potential health consequences for those who cannot find or afford clean drinking water and which communities are most impacted? Well, clearly in the urban areas, the poverty communities are the ones most impacted. They don't have the money 
the cash to buy those tanks of water that may be distributed. And as a result, they're the ones that suffer the most. They, along with the rural poor, are, are the ones who essentially have non-drinkable water. And the result of that is to see over the course of the past decade, and particularly the last three to four years, a huge increase in diarrheal diseases, in pneumonia, tuberculosis. And part of the reason is because of the lack of clean water. And the other reason is because the health facilities don't have water. So hospitals have closed, clinics have closed. If you don't have clean water to treat people, it's most likely that they're going to suffer and in fact die. And the population group that's most affected are the children. You know, one of the statistics that I found most shocking, what UNICEF put out not too long ago, which basically said that the mortality rate for children under five years of age, which today is at the level that it was in 1990, 31 deaths per thousand live births, which means that the Venezuelan mortality rate for children today is worse than Cambodia, Bolivia, Bangladesh, countries which are far less developed in terms of their infrastructure. And right now, Venezuela essentially is seeing children die at a rate that is totally unacceptable. Just to give you some idea, yeah. if the rate were today where it had been in 2010, 12,000 fewer children under five would have died last year. That gives you some sense of the magnitude of the health impact of the failure to maintain clean drinking water. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and as we discussed a few weeks ago with Catherine Bliss, I mean, the fact that Venezuelan hospitals are unable to properly handle the COVID-19 pandemic and in many other diseases for that matter, right, without regular running water, this is bringing huge consequences far beyond the health sector. And, you know, we're talking about other industries and sectors being impacted as well, like the agriculture, electricity, education, and even the oil industry. So can you walk us through the widespread effects and how other sectors like agriculture, education, electricity, even oil are impacted? Sure. Start with agriculture. Clearly, you need to have irrigation for the fields. And if the piping system is not working, that's a fundamental gap. If at the same time, the water that you're bringing, let's say from reservoirs, has been polluted in such a major way because of runoff from mining, illegal and illicit mining. As you know, gold mining produces mercury, and that right. mercury has just been allowed to go into the rivers that feed into some of these reservoirs. And so then the farmers are getting essentially impure water to irrigate. That's one kind of impact. The other is the watersheds that provide the water for all of Venezuela are simply not being maintained and not being controlled. So the environmental degradation that's taking place as a result of this failure affects virtually every industry in the country. And obviously, if you think about the impact on tourism of having impure water, of having beaches that are not uh, in any way clean, rivers and lakes are not a place where you can take your children 
even if you wanted to. Yes, no, it's incredible. And you know, while you were speaking, I remember that the Guri Dam, which is located in, in the south of the country, I think it provides over 70% of the electricity in the country. And, and the Guri Dam obviously depends on water. And I, I know the water supply in the Guri Dam is also collapsing and going down. So again, the, the water issue has so many wide consequences on so many sectors like you were describing. And it's incredible. It's, it's such a basic commodity. Let me just add one other. That is the impact on education from primary school through university of the lack of water is such that in many cases, schools don't have clean water in the schools. And so they're unable to function because the children need to have water during the day. And that's another example of the way yeah. in which the water crisis affects the country as a whole. Yes, absolutely. Now, Venezuelans are suffering through these water shortages just as they are experiencing an unprecedented economic collapse, right? And struggling to put food on the table. The UN and other multilateral organizations explicitly recognize that. And as a human right, people need access to sufficient, safe, acceptable, physically accessible, and affordable water for personal and domestic use. Mark, from a humanitarian perspective, what is the international community doing right now to alleviate this water crisis in Venezuela? And what tools can be implemented today, regardless of whether there is a political transition or not? Well, first, I think that the responsibility lies with the Maduro government, which for many years was simply unwilling to acknowledge the magnitude of the crisis and therefore was unwilling to accept international humanitarian aid because it said it didn't need it, even as people were suffering and the mortality rate was increasing as a result of the lack of water and the lack of food. And now, last year, there was beginning to be a willingness on the part of the government to allow some international, UN particularly, assistance with respect to water. However, it's very limited, and there's a continuing battle because the UN has standards and norms that the water cannot be simply used for those who support the government. And therefore, there's a continuing effort on the part of the UN to ensure that whatever it brings in the form of humanitarian aid reaches all the people, not simply the people selected by the Maduro regime. And now with COVID-19, it's even more critical that there's access to water for the health clinics and for the emergency hospitals that have to be set up. Yeah, it's a human rights recognized by the UN, the access to water, so critically important. But at the end of the day, this is a crisis of governance now that ultimately requires a democratic, stable country. And once that transition does happen, what do you think are the policies that a day after government must prioritize to be able to guarantee clean water and sanitation for the Venezuelan people? Well, interestingly, the professionals who fled the country are quite knowledgeable about what has to be done. So right now is when you want to see the diaspora and the political opposition and those who are going to manage the transition plan. You need to have a comprehensive planning effort by those who will be future leaders of the country, along with the international experts, the international community the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, USAID, the European Union, 
Today, they need to be planning for the emergency day after the first year, and that's going to estimated to require some $400 billion in resources. And then you're going to need to be having a plan that takes it for the next three years, because you essentially have to start from scratch in rebuilding a water system that does not pollute the watershed, a water system that has enough energy and functioning pipes and pumps to move water to the water treatment plants. And again, those need to be rebuilt in many instances, but at the very least, new equipment has to be provided, and then the pipes to get that water to people's homes. And throughout this process, the international community, institutions like those I mentioned, but also partners, states here in the United States, the water systems in national water systems in Colombia, other parts of mm -hmm. Latin America, can partner with the new transition government in helping to bring equipment on an emergency basis to start the process moving. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that the regional country has some experiences to provide no, during the day after scenario too, as you mentioned, Colombia and others. Just to wrap up, Mark, you know, when I hear you and I hear the other experts to talk about the oil industry, the health sector, the humanitarian sector, there's just so many crises going on in Venezuela. So where do you put the water crisis in terms of urgency and priorities when it comes to rebuilding efforts in a day after? Like how prioritized should the international community be right away jumping into the water, rebuilding the water supplies in Venezuela? And why should it be an important priority? I would put it number one or two. Two would be food because the water is so critical for survival. It's so critical to stop unnecessary level of deaths of infants and children from diarrheal diseases. So you need to start moving to get clean drinking water to people's homes. That's number one. And then obviously, given the increased level of malnutrition that we know uh, has occurred over the last several years, I would put food number two. Mark, it was great having you for this episode. Thank you again for sharing your knowledge and your passion to help Venezuela. One day, the country will be thankful for all your service. So thank you again. De nada. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapulus Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Thank you.